Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Documentality, part of the Friends in Your Head Network at friendsinyourhead.com. This is the part of the intro where I would normally say that each episode we look at two or more films united by a common theme. And I guess that's kind of true this week, but we're doing something a little bit special. This is Documentality's official report from Comic-Con 2014. Specifically, the Comic-Con International Film Festival, which if you've never been to Comic-Con, and even if you have, you may not know that this happens, but the fine folks at Comic-Con International run the CCI Film Fest every year, and they have uh, many different films that play, and they have different categories, including a documentary category. So, since I'm the loser that's gone 22 years in a row anyway, and specifically to the film festival for like the last six or seven, uh, I figured why not kill two birds with one stone and do some reporting for y'all, if you're ready. And I think you are. expanding the form, man. Trying to, man. Trying. We got some field re- interviews that didn't necessarily go well because I treated my very nice brand new field microphone like it was a army standard issue walkie-talkie, and I'm just screaming into it. Uh, so, we apologize for the audio for that in advance. But we got a little ways to go before we get there. Yeah, we're professionals, but not at this. Right, exactly. No, you had never been to any of the film festival stuff at Comic Con. I didn't realize there was a film festival at Comic Con. Oh, there is. And guess who one of the judges was? Kathy and Jimmy. Oh, because holy crap! Because reasons, I guess. I'm not exactly sure. So I don't know what else I would have. I don't know what I don't know what I would. I, I thought one of the panels would be like Darth Vader. No, whatever. Well, we've had actually uh, our friend of the show, John Hudgens, who's been on. Uh, this show talking about his documentary. Uh, he's had, I believe, two documentaries scream at the Film Fest. He had American Scary, his documentary about uh, horror hosts, yeah, Elvira, and stuff like that. Yeah, and that was that was good actually. I, I um, he had some he had great access and he had great collection of footage there. Uh, so I, I remember seeing that around 2008. I want to say, um, and I think did he have homemade Hollywood there? I can't remember. Backyard blockbusters. Backyard blockbusters. Yeah, uh, there's so many. There's so there's yeah, the it's, books and yeah. whatnot. Homemade Hollywood is the book that covers the same ground. And uh, the the doctor, uh, the do- young, I think. And then the documentary that I'm I'm not a terribly big fan of, but um, the serenity, the Firefly Serenity fan made documentary uh, something see that's exactly the kind of thing I would expect to, uh, yeah so is it actually like a legit film festival sort of thing or is it more catering to Comic Con it, it definitely it, by the standards of it it definitely has to um, it definitely has to appeal to pop culture in some way or another either comics toys movies games somehow some way or fans I or guess. fans and uh, above and beyond there above and beyond the film festival there's a number of different uh, panels and programs now there's a few that I couldn't go to there's a panel about the uh, Neil Gaiman uh, documentary that they are filming there's the very um, it's long in production the showrunners documentary a documentary about TV showrunners that one's uh, they had a separate event uh, with Nerdist up at the Horton Grand Theater um, I didn't get to attend that, but there were a few that I did get to attend. So I'll get right into it. The first panel that I went to was for the name of the panel was Digging E.T. Behind the Scenes of the Xbox Originals documentary Atari Game Over. I had actually heard I didn't I didn't know about the documentary, but I knew about this actual little piece of weird historicity where there's this game that's considered so goddamn awful that they ended up just like burying everything that was left unsold in like a pit in the desert or something. I didn't know they're making a documentary about it. Though. Pretty much. Now it's been long rumored. The, the, you know, the it's urban like the area 51. Yeah. The, <laughs> the urban legend was, and just to give, and we'll go into the details of the panel, but to get it, to set this up, Atari at the height of its popularity in 1982, literally seven weeks prior to ET, the movie coming out, dropped a game. Uh, well, they, Spielberg, um, I guess his kids were enjoying Atari. And so at some point, Spielberg approached Atari and said, hey, uh, we want a game for this and you have five weeks. 
and oh, not dropped a game, <laughs> yeah, started a game, started a game. Oh. Uh, seven weeks prior to release, and they needed it to match the release date of the film. So the and the, the, this is this was part of the story was all at least verified fact was the fact that uh, Howard Scott Warshaw, one of the lead designers at Atari. Him and literally like six other people had six weeks to make a game. Well, God, Eddie, when you set it up that way, it makes it sound like the game was going to be a huge fucking failure. And indeed, it was. It had a ninety-seven percent retail return rate. Um, <laughs> oh it, I've, pl- I've actually played the game. I've actually played the game in my lifetime. Oh shit! For real, they actually at a uh, Stanley's Kamikaze last November. They had a classic game set up. See, I was going to guess that like Sean has a copy of it. Yeah, um, a friend of the show and and my uh, one of my best friends, Sean Baby, Sean Baby Riley. Uh, he did hit one of his famous worst games of all time article, and yeah. e- you know the ET was like at number one. But the mechanics of the game were very simple. The mechanics of the game were you were ET, you had to find pieces of your phone. You walked around a field of basically holes. You fell into the hole. 99 times out of 100, the hole contained no pieces of your phone. The if you were light, and so to get out of the hole, you had to hit a button that extended your neck and you would float very, very, very slowly out of it. And you had a split second to get out of the hole. And if you didn't, you fell right back in. Meanwhile, that sounds like the most frustrating game in history. It's it's I mean it's it's not even like it's not even ironic fun. It's it's just like this is miserable. Like ironic fun in that era for me reminds me of, like there's the Penn and Teller game where you just drive a bus to Phoenix. Right. Like in real time? Right. Yeah, or or like Leisure Suit Larry is like, oh, this dialogue's so stupid or King's Quest, oh god, he's such an idiot. You know, th- those are ironic fun bad video games. This was just like misery. It's boring so as hell. It had a 97% return rate and then the urban legend was is that the game was so bad they took all the un you know, cuz they mass produced this thing. Uh, they took all the where do we put all these thousands and thousands of game cartridges? Right. So th- as the story went, they drove it to a, not even a landfill, just literally empty desert <laughs> in the middle of Albuquerque, New Mexico, and buried it. And for the longest time, everybody thought, oh, that's bullshit, because the cost of transportation and shipping and actually the labor involved, as opposed to just letting it rot in a, um, in a warehouse, you know, would be, it just didn't make sense. Uh, so the film, directed, interestingly enough, by Zach Penn, the screenwriter of Last like, Action Hero, X Men Two, uh, Watchmen, Avengers. Like, oh, he, he directed this. Well, the, the, and this is why I found out on the panel. On the panel, uh, firstly, was Nolan Bushnell, the founder of Atari, and basically the Don Corleone of video games. He was on the panel, as well as Howard Scott Warshaw himself, the guy who designed the Atari game, and who is, if there is a main character in the film, uh, it's him. Um, Simon Chin, uh, who is the producer of Searching for Sugar Man and Man on Wire. He's the executive producer. He had a hell of a pedigree on this. Hell of a pedigree on this. Um, Zach Penn. And then... Uh, <laughs> Zach Penn, of course. The, well, the, the guy who came up with the concept to do it was Mike Burns. And he was the, fu- uh, the CEO of Fuel. I thought you were going to say, like, and it was Tom Hanks. It was no. <laughs> Barack Obama, you no, guys. No, so he basically, he, he, him and he pitched it to... He pitched it to Xbox when Xbox still had a film content division. Isn't that like for like red versus blue episodes and stuff? Yeah, but they, I mean, there were for a while Xbox was looking, and but literally, you know, about three weeks ago from prior recording this, they shut down the entire division. Huh. So this will still premiere on the Xbox network in October, um, and then but, be the last and, thing that happens with the there. last original production. Um, huh, so. Yeah, Mike Burns basically pitched the idea to Xbox. Xbox was great. Let's attach some talent to this. And um, the idea yeah. being that they were going to go search out. Yeah, the whole, the whole, initially, the whole premise of the documentary was that they were going to go find if this was true or not. Um, and spoiler alert: when I walked into, when I walked into the panel, they handed me two things. One, they handed me a poster for like a Battlefield game, which whatever. The other thing they handed me was a rubber bracelet for 
ET game over or Atari game over is the name of the film and literally GPS coordinates of where the landfill no is. No way. Yeah, they found it. In April, they actually found the it's entire real. site. So we sit down there and they said, yeah, uh, and it kind of made news. So it's not, it made news back in April. Yeah, I'm sure other people, people who would have cared about this documentary already, right. already knew this. Right. It's only a spoiler to idiots like myself. So uh, the moderator, which was Larry Herb uh, from Xbox, he said, okay, uh, you know, we're going to, you know, if you signed up at the thing, you know, we, we actually have an Atari ET cartridge here that we're going to give away uh, through like a, a lottery thing. How many were there? Of those cartridges, tens of thousands. Okay, yeah. So um, not not not, and like, they didn't even excavate. They excavated like a fraction of them. They they basically took a few, and that was it. Yeah, because ultimately you're still like, well, this is still a landfill full of shit. Well, and that's the thing. It's like the game that he had with him. They showed at the panel was in a Ziploc bag, and he said, "The only thing we're going to say, whoever wins this game, do not open the bag here." In the convention floor, it smells. Huh. It is the worst smell I've ever had in my life because it's a, it, it became also a landfill and it's been under oh. the ground for fucking thirty years. Very juicy. So, did you watch the movie? Yeah, I did see the movie. How was it? Good. Uh, it's it's um, you know I'd say structurally and tonally it's similar to what you would expect from a uh, you know like a super size me style structure where I mean Zach Penn appears on camera quite a bit. Uh, there's narration. There's great interviews. Uh, with a lot of people and the, the the what it became what initially was pitched was just you know the search for the the games what it ended up becoming is the story of atari and the story how of basically the story of atari is you know because there's been so many things like you know urban legends like oh et was such a failure it was the worst game of all time and it killed atari that's not exactly true and the film kind of goes in detail you know it's setting up exactly you know what the game did and then also what it didn't do and then why Atari failed and why it didn't fail, but also the lasting legacy and you and just how we would not have, even though video games came technically before Atari, um, there, we would not have the video game landscape that we do now without Atari. And it be, you get more like human characters. That sounds good. It's good. It's it's very much a story told in the past. Like you're not. Get, I mean, it just uses the dig as like a framing device. It's a, it's a feature, right? It's a feature. A feature length. It's yeah. It's, it's in like the ninety minute range. Maybe it's definitely less than ninety minutes. I forget exactly how long. But Atari it's game a, over. Atari game over. Uh, but I would highly recommend that. That's gonna be available on Xbox Network uh, sometime in early October. After that film, um, on I've been playing phone tag with uh, the filmmakers for the next uh, film panel that I got to go see, which was the uh, they're calling they have an official title now. This documentary is still in production and probably won't come anywhere near distribution uh, until next year. Um, and they don't have specific uh, distribution lined up. The film is Bat Kid Begins. Oh, which, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that, that probably gives away what it's about. But if you're unfamiliar, if you've been living under a rock. Yeah. I, I heard about this two days a year ago. So so it's not like Bat Boy, the tabloid thing. No, no, no. So Bat Kid Begins. Uh, this film. <laughs> <laughs> so Bat Kid Begins. If you're unfamiliar with the story of Bat Kid, uh, essentially last November, uh, a a cancer patient a you know six-year-old cancer patient by the name of uh, miles scott um he was working with the make-a-wish foundation he had just finished his round of chemotherapy um for leukemia and his whole like his whole wish was i want to be batman so i mean that's that could mean a bunch of different things you know that could mean oh do you want to wear a costume do you want to go to a party do you want i mean so but what the san francisco make a wish foundation san francisco chapter of the make a wish foundation was able to do for him was literally turn all of san francisco into gotham city for a day uh they had uh, just i mean they had they put on a whole show so they had like a guy dressed as the riddler and they had a woman tied to the train tracks with a bomb so he had to go defuse the bomb they had a full-size adult 
uh, dressed as Batman to escort him through the city. They had multiple Batmobiles. They uh, the Penguin kidnapped the mascot for the Giants. Oh my god! He had to go save him. Uh, they had video the and I'll get into this more. But Batman had a video projector attached to his wrist, and they were in communication with the actual San Francisco Chief of Police, playing the Gotham Chief of Police, and like saying, "Yeah, okay, but you've done a great job. But you need to go to this and do this obstacle course, and 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 oh, you've done such a great job. It's time for lunch. Go get a burger at this place. It's on me." And then at the end of the day, meanwhile, that day in San Francisco, crime skyrockets. <laughs> but but like at the end of the day, uh, he's given the key to the city and the entire I cannot I cannot underestimate this. The entire city got behind this. That's so cool. They had 17,000 people willing to volunteer like that, that like flooded like the San Francisco Make-A-Wish Foundation's um, you know, uh, phone lines and websites saying, how can we help? How can we help? What can we do? And uh, it's it's been commonly referred to as the day the internet was nice because it, <laughs> literally everybody like the story went viral. President Obama ended up sending in a vine to Miles saying congratulations for saving Gotham. Like I mean, it, it became you can't understate this. I was actually in San Francisco the weekend before this happened last November, and um, so what you're saying is you missed it. I missed it, uh. but the thing is, is that. Every bar and restaurant I went to, I literally overheard people like talking planning. about their plans. Yeah, like, are you going to be? There? Yeah, I'm going to be down the mission. I'll, I'll be. I think they're doing this, and you know, I'll be over at. Uh, I'll be over at Giant Stadium, and yeah, just they were just planning on what they were going to do. Huh. People had signs. It was it was really an amazing thing. So, I contacted the filmmakers of this uh, prior to San Diego Comic Con, and um, specifically the director Dana Nachman. And I kind of said, hey, I'll be there. So I, I went down and I was actually able to interview Dana. And again, I'm going to apologize for the audio on this. But uh, but I was able to get do Get down. I, I get was, down. There's a grenade. <laughs> I was able to. She sounds better than I do. And, and hopefully, T, we've done some wonkery here to kind of make me sound a little bit less gainy. But, uh, but I did a quick um, five-minute interview with Dana. We're going to go to that now. Omniscient editor's note, this interview lasts until 19 minutes and 10 seconds into the audio file. Okay. Okay. All right, Dr. Natalia coming to you live from San Diego Comic Con 2014. I am with Dana Nachman, director of the upcoming Bat Kid Begins documentary. How are you doing, Dana? I'm great. Thank you for meeting up with me. Oh, no problem. What uh, the footage you showed looked really good. I was, I was, I was really impressed. And I, I know you came aboard the project sort of well after the fact. Yes. Well, firstly, what connected? Like, what about the the subject just drew drew you to it? Like, what was what be, what was your interest in the project to begin with? So I've done a lot of really dark documentaries, um, important but dark social justice films, and I needed a little bit of a break from that, and then this came along. I totally missed it because I was editing that day on another project, but then when I heard how people were talking about it and how it resonated with so many thousands of people, I couldn't help but, but want to get involved, and so I reached out to the Make-A-Wish Foundation and said, is anybody doing a documentary? I'm dying to do it. They said, yeah, we had some people who want to work on it, and I bet, you know, I basically said, here are my credentials, here are my references of people who have been in my films, I'm only a little bit crazy, Please let me do it, and I just wanted to do something to to see what what would make thousands and thousands of people on the ground and millions of people online stop what they were doing for a day and be happy and supportive of one little kid. Totally. Now, because you came on board after the fact, you were there shooting Verite footage sort of as it was happening. You've had to rely on footage, sort of almost in a weird way, crowdsourced in a, in a bizarre way. Who, who specifically, whose footage have you been leaning on the most for during that time? So that's a great question. So my, one of my big questions when I was at Make-A-Wish was, did you 
shoot it that day and they were like oh yeah we actually did with three cameras and two GoPros and I was like oh wait stop the fun so I, I, my original original thought was that we would have to crowdsource all the video of it which would have been cool too and, and there is some in there but we had this great body of video to work with um, of these five cameras that were rolling pretty much the whole day um, and even shot some of the rehearsals and backups and so that was amazing so I'm using mostly that is from, in, in that regard then is uh, your structure more you're telling the story almost in a post tense with you know interview, uh, interviews with people framing like this is what happened this is what's bringing us to now like where, where and then, how does that inform sort of your ending of the film sure so the way I'm structuring it right now I hope it, I can achieve it is the hardest way because most of the video is on the last of, of the day of but I'm making the day of the act three of the film and actually act one and two are the build up to the film so how the team started with just a few people the, the Make-A-Wish Foundation and the family and how it ballooned to 25, 30 people who made this day happen so the act one is backstory of who the who the family is who the Scots are who Miles is what, what his wish was and his inspiration why he cares about Batman and then moving on to how this blew up from a very very modest wish of 200 people to 25,000 people on the ground and 2 billion people online so that's how I'm structuring it and because you know we call it the, the day the internet was nice it was such a huge social media giant how how important has it been to sort of piggyback off of that existing social media outreach is already there in terms of the crowdfunding for your film yeah so we unfortunately have just started with our social media because we've been working on the film because we want to finish it within one year which is really tight for me I've, most of my films have been four, four to five years to do so we really just started doing social media like a week and a half ago and, and at the same time we've been launching an Indie, Indiegogo campaign to try to fund all the bells and whistles to make it a huge superhero movie so special effects animations soundtrack really really big stuff so that's what we're doing so we're trying to do it all simultaneously and we hope it works I mean it's just it's it's hard I think right now you're currently you're, uh, you're Indiegogo I believe that what you're aiming for is 100,000 yeah. and you said in your campaign that was primarily for uh, for the special effects for the, the graphics uh, for the score uh, how important are those two just sort of the to your, I, it seems like you're using that as like a storytelling device, comic book panels. How important that is that to you in terms of the structure of your story? I mean, I would never make a film, I would never structure something in a way that I couldn't finish it. So this film will be done. It'll be done at the end of this year, definitely. But to make it even that much cooler um, is what I'm trying to do. So it's not, um, it won't be the end of the film if we can't have it, but it'll be a big superhero movie if we have it. And so I think that whatever we can raise will be just icing on the cake and amazing for, you know, for the film. Is everything in the canon you're purely in post or are you still requiring interviews at this point? We still, we have an interview set up next week with the San Francisco mayor and also um, the Uber driver who saved the day. <laughs> so those are my last two two interviews. Um, and then I have just a, a few B-roll shots that I need to get still as well. But for the most part, you're in post-production, scoring Tempe graphics, all that stuff. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. Well, so, so it looks really impressive. I was really impressed with the footage uh, that you had and what you were able to cobble together from pre-existing footage just that make a wish foundation had. So absolutely best of luck to you. Thank you so much. Thank you for this opportunity. No problem. Thank you. And I, I want to thank Dana uh, again for taking the time to speak with me. She's mm-hmm. been very cool. Um, that was cool. Dana, Dana's background, like she kind of alludes to, she's done like two, she's had two feature documentaries released that were sort of like human interest based and human rights based. And so that her filmmaking, you know, background is like that. And like she said, she didn't hear about this until it was already done and after the fact. So, um, but the thing that uh, struck me about Dana and everybody involved is the, it, it's an urgency to get this done 
right. Uh, and not just make, the movie. Yeah. And not just, not just make a, Hey, here's a cool thing that happened. Like they really are trying to go above and beyond. I, they showed the first footage from the film that they've acquired in the panel on the panel uh, at the uh, at the thing uh, involved Patricia Wilson, CEO of uh, Make a Wish Greater Bay, uh, Bay Area, uh, Eric Johnson, who played he's the guy the stuntman who played Batman. He's also an inventor who uh, designed uh, all the gadgets that and like the bomb that they def- that they diffuse <laughs> and the and his wife. Um, Sue Graham Johnson was the damsel they had to rescue tied to the trolley tracks. Uh, <laughs> and then they also had um, uh, uh, Chris Taylor from Mashable. He ended up kind of becoming a producer on the film as well. And he um, uh, uh, he kind of moderated the panel, but he's also in the film too. Um, and also Mike Jutin, the guy who plays, he's a actually a software engineer at LucasArts, but he just volunteered and he be, ended up becoming the Penguin. So like... They the the story in the this panel is like Make a Wish meets Improv Everywhere. It is, but like the thing they is, went big. Well, that's the thing is like what you know. In the beginning of the panel, they sort of like set up how the whole thing came about. Uh, Patricia had mentioned of you know, so she she knew she knew that by the sec there's an interview process to like see if we can actually make these kids' wishes come true, and so she had like three or four different options, and one of them was turn San Francisco into. Uh, Gotham City. What, what does that mean? Just, well, I, she didn't well, know. I'll, I'll That's it, what I'll she said. It, I'll see it in the movie, I guess, when it comes out. But does, are we talking about like painting everything black and making it moody? She didn't even know. When she threw that out there, she's like, I just said it. And then it was like, <laughs> like oh, damn it. And it's like, well, I gotta, <laughs> I guess I gotta figure out a way to make that happen. So initially, it was just like a couple cast of characters. She casted a Batman because she had worked with uh, Eric Johnson before on Other Wishes. And she had worked with Mike on some stuff. And so she just initially gathered like her initial circle. And then it started growing and growing. And then like as word spread in sort of like the San Francisco municipality, um, more and more people started coming forward. And then Mike Jutin, the guy who plays Penguin, he, he sent out like the first tweet about it, like in the, in the weeks leading up to it. And from there, it was like, oh, I want to be a part of this. I want to be a part of this. And like literally guys, you know, it's like they needed a Batmobile. They got three calls going like, I got a Lamborghini. And so, like, <laughs> so it just became that. Uh, and then like, you know, once the police got involved and the San Francisco Giants got involved and they're like, uh, because um, Wait, Miles. This is so cool. Miles, Miles is a huge Giants fan. And so she just called. She's like, yeah, I don't know. Could we, could we do a thing at, at Candlestick? Could we, you know, what is what used to be Candlestick Park? So like, can we do a thing there? It's like, we'll do you one better. You can, he can, uh, we can have the penguin kidnap, uh, the mascot. And indeed they did. <laughs> and like there was, I mean, there's just, you know, there's more, uh, details I'll go into the film. I don't want to give everything away, but, um, you know, Eric Johnson, uh, he, div- he built this, projector uh where you know they were communicated at through the chief of police like great job bat kid and you know the so but when i like i said in the interview with dana um you know the actual bat kid event only makes up the last third of the film the rest of it is establishing miles as a as a person and as a human his love for batman sort of how like the superhero mythology you know leukemia and they say this in the footage that i saw once this specific strain of leukemia it immediately turns the kid into a fighter because they were literally fighting every single day for life. And miles had like such a positive, upbeat attitude and just, and he was determined and he was a huge Batman fan to begin with. And so he, he literally approached his struggle with leukemia like a fight against crime or like a fight against evil. And he went into it with that mentality, which was part of the reason why they all wanted to work really hard to make this happen. So the first two acts are cancer story more. 
first act is kind of introducing everybody, uh, you know, cancer. And then by, I'd say by the end of the, from what the impression that I got, and I don't know yet, the impression that I got by the end of the first act, break into second is the process of making the wish start to come true. Sure. And then, Act, leading the charge yeah, inside a exactly. mega wish and then the and, act three is yeah. all right let's do this bang start exactly and i don't want to give everything away but that sounds good that's a, yeah i was worried that you, the way you said it made it sound like it's going to be mostly something else and at the last minute is all this cool oh, stuff no, about no. san francisco but but still in the last third um and and this and again dana said in the interview like this she that's what she's hoping to do things always change yeah, we'll but see. i but, can't wait to see it though yeah uh there is something that happens during the day that threatens to derail the whole process and there's like a miracle random thing that happens involving uber uh and, it, and that's gonna be, and that's gonna make for a great story too uh, but the entire crew I, t- I spoke to the producer uh, as what one of the other producers as well he was actually sitting next to me during the panel really great group of people and uh, you know and and you know as Patricia said like you know she said outside of having my two kids this was the greatest thing I've ever done in my life so you got and, good vibes off this movie oh yeah absolutely I got I got good vibes now with that said um, and I'll, and I hope to have him on the show here for uh, under different circumstances but my, my buddy Jeff Latulip um, he was publicly critical about the fact that they are in the middle of an Indiegogo campaign for a $100,000 um, uh, budget. The Bat Kid people? Yeah. Bat Kid people are currently on Indiegogo right now asking for $100,000. I'm actually going to... For like finishing and processing and mastering? And mostly and mostly post. Um, and, but there's, and, the, and the reason for that and and as I you know said in my um, and they're already sixty five thousand dollars in so I don't think they're gonna have any trouble with uh, fifteen days left I think they're okay and it's flex funding so they're gonna get that no matter what but um, but what I well what's the argument well the argument is and his argument and to a degree I understand it um, his argument is for a film because as Dana said in the interview she didn't film any of the events she came on the project after this whole thing had happened ah. so she's relying on a footage that Make a Wish shot on two 5Ds and three GoPros. And the argument is that she's getting the money and not well, like a well, no, but then she's people? she then she went back and then did all these interviews with everybody involved, like everybody. Right. Oh, by the way, coolest moment of the panel by far and away. They interview Hans Zimmer. And then after the interview, uh, Dana on her cell phone filmed Hans composing an original score for no miles no way and it's amazing that is amazing it is so because and he's and he's the, i just wish alex was here to be like putting his like cupping right. his hands over his mouth being like that is awesome i'm sure it'll be somewhere like it'll be in the film somehow but he literally <laughs> he literally like just walked up to a piano he well no he's got his whole setup there he's got it's it's a it's a keyboard and it's his mac and he's he's got pro tools open and he literally's like okay let's get a good blah and so he makes the blah sound and then he's like okay and then we need an arpeggio and then he lays in his arpeggio and he's he's editing as fast as i edit tv if not faster <laughs> and cool. and he's like okay now we need a good drum boom and so then he loops it he creates a 45 second piece of music for miles in under 10 minutes in like 45 seconds no in, in like under 10 minutes yeah, yeah. He, and like he composed and like oh that's great with strings and like with like, with like seven piece instrumentation so i mean he he and he's like there you go miles and i mean just like that just and all throughout the panel and hopefully all throughout the movie certainly in the trailer they talk about how people were above and beyond you know they asked for 100 volunteers they got 17,000 you know so um anyway so back to what i was saying um jeff and and a few others i've talked to privately have said jeff an editor who is jeff jeff latulip he's a writer he wrote that movie uh going the distance uh he was on the blacklist okay so he's he's a working screenwriter he's he's a buddy of mine and right on um and so but he on twitter i know he, he he was he was actually initially how i found out about the campaign 
And so he said, like, you don't need $100,000 to do largely post on an indie documentary. What they intend to do is a lot of, like, cool graphical elements to basically prevent this from becoming a talking head documentary. Uh, they're, they're doing this, you know, and if they can't do that, then they can't. But from the footage I saw, it looked very, very competent. It looked very... And not just competent, but confident. They knew exactly what they were trying to approach this as, and they knew what they were going for. And I personally, I, you know, I, I kind of went in and I asked her that, you know, as we were talking, like, you know, what is it we're hoping to accomplish with this budget? Um, and I was, I was satisfied with the answer that I got. And from what I saw, I have absolutely no problem. You know, I'm, I, you know, I donated, and I have absolutely no problem giving my money to kind of help them achieve their vision. But it does bring up a unique question of. If this were a scripted movie, if this were a Zach Braff movie, if this were whatever else, would people have that same question? Would people like, oh, you don't need that amount of money for an indie film, you know, or for your, you know, if Zach Braff said like, hey, I need an extra hundred thousand dollars for music clearance rights. I, I think most people would have no problem with that. Most of the people who donated, but I think for whatever reason, documentaries are kind of held to a higher standard or a different standard. Well, it's because it's the difference. I would imagine to play the advocate of that side of the argument that the it's more that the honest of creation mm-hmm. in a scripted or a narrative piece, some sort of a fictional piece, is largely on just a few people who are responsible for the creation itself. Whereas a documentary is playing heavily on things that just you happen to film, but that person that you're filming is the person who is creating the content, or at least that's how it would seem to someone who doesn't edit a lot. Sure. Maybe it's just a thing where it's, you know, most of what your documentary is is you filming other people doing stuff and then you just did a remix at the last minute. Well, but would I would be a way of approaching it. I would say, but I would also argue like, you know, no two documentaries are like, I mean, would you say that about of Active Killing? Would you say that about The Unknown Known, which relies heavy on not just CG and graphics, but a lot on recreations? It's not just interviews and archival. It's, it's artistic elements being introduced to deliver, you know, to, to convey themes and convey feelings and thoughts that go above and beyond just data. Well, sure. But imagine if in this case, I'm still playing advocate here. If in this case, she didn't go back and get more footage. She was just using footage that Make-A-Wish and, and like families shot and she's just editing it. Shouldn't she be paying the people that filmed it and so on and so forth? Because they weren't filming it for this. They were just filming it and then gave her footage and now she's making money off of it. Well, I mean, look, I donate quite a lot on Kickstarter and Indiegogo, you know, just small amounts and, and Patreon now too. I, Patreon's like a whole thing. Yeah. Um, but And so the questions I always have for any campaign, for anything, is um, what do you have already? What do you need to get you to this step? And how will the thing you're asking for enhance what you already have? How will it take that thing to the next level? And if the answer to that is marginal, then I'm less likely to donate. Right. But if it's like... Like, you can't get this done without that money. Right. Yeah. And so, based on the little bit I saw of what they intend to do graphically, um, I get it. Uh, and they shot some damn beautiful footage of... Because he's not from... San, Miles is not from San Francisco. He's from, like, way North California. They live on a farm. They got some great footage of uh, of Miles, like, in his home. And they have great um, access to the entire family. The entire family is just salt of the earth. And I am always... I, I cannot sit here as someone who has a show where I do nothing but advocate for documentary filmmakers to do the next level thing and not say you know, don't ask for money to do the next level thing for so, me. So what's your, if you were to sort of ambiguate your overall feeling about documentaries and Kickstarter or uh, Indiegogo, what, what is your, what is your read on how people should approach crowdsourcing? I would just say if you have, if you're a documentary filmmaker for this, uh, do, give me more than interviews and B-roll. 
if you're if you're already like give me give me something that lets me know you're competent you have a very distinct vision you mean in the actual video itself you want to see that they know what they're doing yeah exactly i need to see, i mean i and I, guess, I think that goes for anything like it's you know right. um you know like our, our friend nika harper she has a uh, wordplay which she just hit through patreon uh-huh. and it's a web series uh and she's asking for money to do a web series but she already did a season of it. So she's just asking to continue it independently. At which point you can just go back and look and see it. Exactly. And you can be like, okay, I like this. I want more of this. I can do that. Uh, for the Bad Kid Begins people, it's like they, they're going to have a good film no matter what. And as, she, as Dana says in the, in the doc, but it's like to really give it that extra oomph. You know what I mean? To give the equivalent is to give your, your VFX department an extra 30 days on something so yeah, that yeah. they don't just run against release. That was my read on it at least. Yeah, I can imagine a version of Blackfish without its graphics that is a, ch- a fundamentally cheaper feeling. Movie. Exactly. Or Those graphics really added a lot. Or Elmore, any Elmore Morris's films without the recreations that he does. And not or, just or recreations. Or Ken Burns without a slow push-in. <laughs> which... Which those graphics cost money, Edward. Yeah, hey, the 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 five frame keyframe, uh, it means a lot, dude. Thirty frame dissolves, hey. and then a slow a photo roll, and then the whole ah, and and the treatment for the carpal tunnel, and yeah. So uh, in this case, you're you're you are on team Bat Kid, hundred grand. Absolutely. Well, yeah, I'm I'm totally on uh, team Bat Kid, and and I'm gonna put my money literally where my mouth is. And, uh, and then eat it and, and swallow and it. Eat it. But anyway, so uh, where they are now, they're currently in uh, production. They still they sh- when I talked to her, she said they had a couple more interviews to do. Uh, one she didn't want to say with who, but uh, she's got a couple that they're uh, that they have uh, left. And uh, but after that's primarily editing. But and they're editing out of the Bay Area, so they they can, they can they have access to all the people that they need to get access to. But look for that sometime next year. I know they're going to hit the festivals. I know Deadline reported the trailer like at right, immediately after the panel. Bat Kid begins. Bat Kid Begins. That's the name of the film. If you go to Indiegogo, you go to Indiegogo.com forward slash projects forward slash Bat Kid dash begins. You can hit the campaign page and uh, we'll have a link again in the forums. Yeah. And future people, you'll look at it as an archive piece of history and go, ah, they did or did not cross that margin. <laughs> exactly. Anyway. And wasn't it amazing? And oh my God, the tragedy. But for the next two weeks after this moment of recording, right. Hey. Right. So go, then, go, go. So then after that, uh, most of the, that was it for, in terms of panels, um, the majority of the film festival was, for documentaries was on Saturday and it was made up of just various films. I'll kind of go through these quick. And it sounds like they're not all features in this case. No, they're, they're like the, short docs. And yeah, stuff there's, like that too. yeah, they're not, there's, they're not uh, sort of, you know, miscegenated. They're not, or they're not sort of segregated into uh, short and feature. They all compete in the same category. And to that end, there's a 20 minute documentary called The Walking Dead, A Decade of Dead, which is about, it's, it's, it's it's Prescott stuff. I mean, it's well produced. It's well done. It's shot well. Is it like it's all, online? Is it almost literally like EPK stuff? It's EPK stuff. It, it yeah. should be on it's, a DVD it, somewhere. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a it's a it's like it's Blu-ray content in my mind. Okay. So, uh, but it's good if you're a fan of The Walking Dead and you're a fan of Robert Kirkman and going back to the comics and you want to. They have great interviews with like Chris Hardwick and Patton Oswalt. It's on YouTube. You can watch it right now. You could stop listening to this and watch it right now on YouTube. The Walking Dead: A Decade of Dead. Totally fine. Totally harmless. Uh, but in, in terms of like competition, did for, you learn anything from that documentary? Anything? No, because know? because uh, uh, you know, let me put on my hipster glasses here. I was reading Walking Dead before it was cool. Yeah. Um, yep. Before it was a show. Uh, but no, it's it's totally fine. And Robert Kirkman's just a good dude, and you know, he's one of those guys. I guess he you gets, can't really hold an EPK documentary up against the standards of a massive weirdo comic nerd like you. Right. Well, which <laughs> like, will kind of. Did you learn anything? Screw you, man. <laughs> well, and that kind of gets me to sort of the trouble with this year's film festival, to be honest with you, because a lot of, you know, it, Walking Dead was very much an official EPK, but some of these others, you know, they were they were a bit amateurish, um, with the exception of the winner, which we'll get to, uh, but... When you say amateurish, what are you referring to? Like production quality or like style or... Everything. Just, 
just the production quality is rudimentary. The you know uh, interviewing with people against a window with the shades drawn. Uh, so basically, you know bad I mean? instincts in all parts. Bad instincts in all parts. I mean, great intentions. You know, yeah, no, and well, the intentions are like, yeah. Path to please help. keep the intentions. Yeah, that's that's yeah. the whole point. It's, and, it's, I was just curious what you know because and, and subject matter that that I would love to see more of. Um, so, for instance, one of the others was a film called Illustrated by. Uh, which is uh, specifically about the impact of Filipinos in the comics industry and the fact that like um, many of the many of the influential artists uh, who have drawn for some of these famous comics are in fact Filipino. Huh. Um, it's like a, like a disproportionate representation of Filipino folks. Yeah. For whatever reason, it's awesome at drawing, but, but like nobody really. It's like oh yeah, I guess he is Filipino. It's, it's sort of like huh. nobody really kind of threaded that needle. Cool. Um, Totally yeah. fine, but uh, you know, like um, it had it just you know you can watch the trailer for it online. Uh, illustrated by and if you type in illustrated by in Filipino and YouTube, you'll bring it right up. What was the thing they did the best in that? In case you know, folks from Illustrated by listen to this, and we, they they we don't want them to like write our names no, no, on their I Steve Buscemi list. I know, I know, no, and look, I, I I watched I watched it, and um, you know, it, it, it definitely um, this is the problem is that without a lot of filmmaking skill there's a plateau sure and it's the same plateau that the firefly people hit the firefly people just happened to get adam baldwin to narrate their film oh yeah you know what i mean i remember that and had some production value but structurally that thing is a mess and um so in the case of illustrated by it sounds like really good instinct for a story to tell no yeah really good instinct for a story to tell and a great topic a great topic that deserves more i just i wish that they would have followed like an arc with a person who happens to be a Filipino American or just a Filipino comic artist and just give it some frame. Yeah. Like the, the, the Filipino American comic artist is a good backdrop for a story, but it's not a story. You so know it could I mean? be this one guy trying to get a storyteller, pick a thing, yeah, but just, pick, a, just a spine yeah. to drape this information on. This is something that's been told me a bunch of times when it comes to documentary filmmaking and something I'll repeat to anybody else. Go deeper. You know, Filipino American comic artist. Great. What's the thing ahead of that? I don't know. Is there a father son story? Is Whoa. there a you know? Is okay, there a, you know? Say is there is there um, a guy who's you know maybe uh, maybe he wants to aspire to be this and he's not good enough? Like I mean, what's what's the thing? You know what I mean? Like yeah. Crumb is a documentary about a comic book artist, but it goes deeper. You know what I mean? It goes it goes into the psyche of that guy and you get a bit more. This is just more of like, hey, these guys were comic book artists too, and they had you know it's 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 fine. I just want, I'm, I was left wanting more. Sure. So, but that's, I mean, these guys were first time filmmakers and, and it's the, well, it sounds about. like the sort of thing that if they wanted to expand it into a feature, they totally could. They totally could, but they would need, they would need that additional but, thing. But yeah. But that would yeah. almost be a requirement at that point. Did the, did the Serenity doc premiere at the, it did. Film it, festival? it played actually right before John Hudges doc at CCI in 2000. I want to say nine, John, if you're out there, you can let us know uh, when you're, when uh, American scary played there. But yeah, it literally played right before American scary. And let me tell you, I went in, I went in a bit early to see John's film and that mm-hmm. film was finishing up. And I mean, like it wasn't like a packed audience, but like the audience that was there was fully invested, brown coats, tears in their eyes, like as like the acoustic version of the theme plays. And, <laughs> you know, like, it just, I mean, and as Adam Baldwin walks off the set, just all these all these cliches happening once. It was just it was just like it, it was low hanging fruit, man. It was yeah. just like, you know, uh, I, call so, it, I call that a Yoda audience. So I want to say that was like 2008, 2009. So around that time frame, um, the other film, uh, White Scripts, Black Superman, Black Masculinities in Comic Books. Um, great. That sounds like an excellent thing to talk about. Excellent thing to talk about. Needs to be talked about. Has a place to be talked about. Another I would love it. Like illustrated by. I would love 
Ta-Nehisi Coates from the Atlantic to do a 10-page essay on this very subject. Is it, they were talking about like Black Spider-Man and shit like that? Uh, I'll, I'll read, you know, through interviews and prominent artists, scholars, and cultural critics, along with images from the comic books themselves, this film examines the degree to which early black superheroes generally adhered to common stereotypes about black men. From the humorous to the offensive, early black superheroes are critically considered. Participating panelists include Jonathan Gales from Georgia State, um, Julian Chambliss from Rollins College, uh, and I'm going to destroy this name, Adelifu Nama from LMU. And great intellectual material. Well, that's for Spike Lee. Where's Armand White? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's the thing. Is that great in intellectual material needed more talking heads, needed more examples, pop culture commentators. Uh, here's here's a, here's the thing. I'm just going to go ahead and say I I want people, especially if you're going to be doing documentaries about things that are in the pop culture and then in the ether, get familiar with fair use laws. You're actually more covered than you think. Uh, transformative use, it, it, you know, it's a powerful thing. Go, go watch, you, go watch that dumb, awesome Red Letter Media Phantom Menace review thing on YouTube. But no, like, but like, notice how that hasn't been taken down. That's because it's 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 not like flying under the radar. It's got millions and millions of views. It just passes the the, the test. It's right. It's fair. Right. I mean, I I just worked on a show. You can get away with more than you think you can get away with. I just worked on a TV show called um called The People's Couch, and it was basically the soup, but for TV shows, and people watched them and made fun. And I was asking our, our showrunner, our EP, I'm like, so do we pay a fee? She's like, for some stuff in advance, we pay a fee. but And we ask for permission, but we don't need permission. We have fair use on our side. She's like, half the shows, we don't ask for permission. We rely on fair use, and our lawyer says we're 100% covered. It's like Al doesn't actually have to ask yeah. before doing a parody, but he does. The big things are, Just be nice. the big things are transformative use and non-manipulation. So if you're going to show a clip, you have to show a clip in its entirety. You can't slip the audio from one thing under another thing. Huh. And you have to show it in excerpts. And you, you can't do like an L cut with a shot from the No, 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 no. That's the big thing. Huh. And that's, and, and you know, if I am plain sight, I'm dealing with that right now. So you idiot, what'd you do? No, 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 I'm, I'm handling it. But oh, that's like, that okay. was even on the short version of fine plain sight. That was one thing. It's like, I thought, that, I thought that's what you were talking about. Yeah, you can't. And you also can't make a completely, um, uninterrupted cut between a jump cut between the two materials of the same thing. You'd have to like cut away to somebody and then cut back to recontextualize it. Yeah. So, so, so it does so you're not basically framing it as if, sorry, hold on, finish that up. Yeah. Fucking. Yeah. So, so basically so that you're not reframing the original material as if you put that cut there but everyone thinks that uh, you know what I mean exactly and I would, I would consult there are some great resources online to look up fair use laws but you have more freedom than you think don't be afraid of it and uh, that would have benefited this that would have benefited white scripts and black superman way more that's a discussion that needs to be had uh, more than ever I think and I, I think anytime it's up my alley if we're talking about race or gender politics in the media especially in the popular media especially in fanboy media because Actually, I think shit Donald Glover should be in that too that's what I'm saying like I, they, they had no budget they had access to like uh, 10 people sure. and they shot it and then it's like I, I didn't get a chance to speak to the filmmakers I really wish I had because I want to see the thing that this can ultimately become they could use that as like the materials to create a really kick-ass Kickstarter pitch absolutely and yeah I mean like we're got, making this movie we're going to talk about this absolutely and I and I and, and indeed I wish they had and like so how, how long was that one? Was that a full length one? It was a short. Oh, okay. It was a short one. I think it was less. It was less than half an hour. So there's a lot there, though. A lot there, though. Yeah. So and, you know, and, if, and for whatever, and we're, hopefully, I'm going to try to tag everybody. The last one in the film festival that was not the winner was the Forgotten Rabbit, uh, and that's actually online. You can go online and watch that right now. I believe it's in iTunes. Uh, it's this is another really cool piece of history. Yeah. This is great. So, in case you don't know, uh, the iconic Mickey Mouse was not the first thing that Walt Disney 
ever drew. And if you go to Disneyland lately, you can buy merch for him now. But for a long time... <laughs> How canny is that? I know. It's, it's weird. It's eerie. <laughs> like, you see kids... I, my favorite thing now, because I have season passes at Disneyland, go to Disneyland, go to the stores where they have Oswald the Lucky Rabbit merch, and watch five-year-olds... Look like, at it with their, their, fa- their faces like what? The, not sure if serious face. They're, they're discovering what Uncanny Valley is. Like they're just you can just see it on their little faces. Like what this, is this? Like it's horrifying. Not, exactly not quite sure. Mickey. So long story short, uh, in Walt's early career in animation, he created uh, a cartoon rabbit named Oswald the Lucky Rabbit for Universal Studios. Looks um, quite a bit like Steamboat Willie. He looks quite a bit like Steamboat Willie, just with long ass ears. He lost it in a legal dispute, so he created Mickey Mouse partially as a big fuck you to Universal, right. and said so, like, fine, I'm just gonna make him a mouse. I'm gonna have him do all the same shit. And parentheses cut to 100 years later cha-ching parentheses exactly. go back so um, but there are people who and, and as a result it's like these Oswald cartoons have kind of gotten forgotten they have like this weird cachet that yeah. if, you, if you know about them they're mysterious and enigmatic and hard to find right so he's kind of been he's kind of been forgotten in time and so this film is sort of like a essentially a love letter to him uh, they had great access. They had, uh, you know, they had some good interviews with people. This one was, I would say, more competently shot than the previous two docs that I talked about. It, it it's presented nicely. Nice. Um, I don't know what ultimately it was trying to say beyond. Oh, this here's was a, a thing. This was a thing, huh. and which has kind of been a theme. It's like, oh, these are things. Um, these are things that to either mentally consider or to, hey, I bet you didn't know this. Um, it sounds like you're wanting a lot more subtext out of these movies. Exactly. Which I feel like you can get out of Bat Kid Begins. And I feel like even out of the E.T. documentary or the Atari Game Over documentary, I felt like there was more thing to get out of there. Because there, there I mean, there's a line in the, in the Atari documentary where he said, like, three lives was created by a guy. And it just makes you think, like, there's all these little cultural touchstones yeah. that we, it's like, oh, there are people who are. Two or three people made Pong. Yeah, exactly. And, like, you know, and, and it's, it's like, it's not just history, but it's also the guy who created E.T., he's. All he's remembered for is creating E.T., even though he's made some amazing games, and E.T. is nowhere near the worst game of all time. It's just unfinished. Have you played 2048? <laughs> exactly. Have you played Superman for N64? It's awful. Sorry, I'm just addicted to 2048. No, it's all, it's all good. So, like, so I, I feel like these things were missing the context that certainly I know what they're going for in Bad Kid Begins. It remains to be seen if they're going to actually be able to hit it. I, I have faith that they will because they got a good team behind them, they have, and they have passion for what they're doing to quote your little mantra it's just that they could go deeper exactly so all these all these could go deeper with the exception of what was the eventual winner of the comic-con film festival which was stripped um documentary just about comic strips straight up uh comic not comic books comic strips this is the one that isn't dear mr waterson no but has a bill waterson penned poster Yes, so this he is actually the, designed the poster is, for this one. Which, film. that by itself is really awesome. And yeah. I'm glad that Bill has stuck his toe in the water like twice in the last couple of years, like they've been Bill sightings. But it's just, don't. I, I had it in my head because randomly, did you know that Jim and I, from the Calvin and Hobbes thing that we made, their little mm-hmm. snowman Calvin and Hobbes thing, yeah. are in Dear Mr. Watterson. And then I found out later, yes. I found out later that I, a font that I made, and I, I sent to the director of Dear Mr. Watterson when I was giving him the other stuff, I was like, oh, by the way, I made this font out of uh, actual Bill Watterson hand. Like in, oh, that's Because the, the old, like, backwards C sort of title card Calvin and Hobbes font has existed forever, but I just took the actual letters that he would write in call-up bubbles and made a font out of that, and I gave it to him, and he used that in the credit roll. So I have a credit wow. in that movie, both for that little short film, but also as font designer, which... Put me and Saul Bass in the same spot on IMDb, man. That's that's us. It's me and Saul Bass <laughs> against the world. I'm very proud of that. Even though I just literally stole Bill's handwriting and got credit for designing the font, he should have gotten credit for it, but he got a documentary. So screw Bill Watterson. I said it first. 
<laughs> and if you uh, if and, you read the blacklist, there were in fact two Bill Watterson scripts on the blacklist this year. So who knows if either one will ever get made? But anyway, stripped. Um, stripped. Uh, they were unique in the sense that they didn't necessarily. I think they did have a panel on Friday night that I missed, but that's okay because they had a booth. They had a booth on the show floor where they were selling retail copies of this and like probably t-shirts and posters. Yeah, selling all definitely sorts of posters. Those. Oh, definitely post. Yeah, they were definitely selling the posters. Oh, you should have bought me a poster. Should have bought you a poster. I did get a Bat Kid Begins t-shirt though. Uh, I so want a Bill Watterson poster. I got to I, I lose. I got to lose like ten pounds first to fit into it. But um, regardless, uh, stripped had a booth, and that's I just straight up rolled up and I said hey I'm Eddie and I'd like to do an interview one of the directors, I, I like your strip booth <laughs> one of the directors had lost his voice the day before from doing press and doing interviews but I was able to snag an interview with the other director uh, and we'll just we'll toss it out right now Omniscient Editor's note colon this interview lasts until 51 minutes and 40 seconds into the audio file alright Documentality coming to you live from San Diego Comic Con 2014 I am with Dave Kellett of the documentary Stripped. And you are the co-director, correct? I am. I, along with Fred Schroeder, have been working on it for the last four and a half years. And you just won the best documentary film at the Comic-Con Film Festival, so congratulations to that. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, it's super exciting. Yeah. Very cool. So uh, a lot of people have, you know, they initiate the start of a documentary by, you know, some sort of personal connection. What is your personal connection to the, the world of comic strips? Oh, great question. Yeah, so I'm, I've been a cartoonist professionally now for 15 years. Um, I do a, a webcomic called Sheldon and a sci-fi comic called Drive. And Fred and I have a shared love, my co-director and I have a shared love of comics. And um, really, as, as a lot of documentarians find, we set out the story that we wish had already existed. You know, a story that needed to be told that no one was telling. Um, so really, no one had done an in-depth, serious look at comic strips as an art form. And so that was the impetus for it. Very cool. Now, how long, when did you guys start production on this? Uh, I don't know the exact day, but it was, it was four and a half, five, years ago now at this point yeah I saw the trailer and I was really impressed with it because I mean it's very common for a lot of documentaries to just be interview b-roll interview b-roll you guys really seem to avoid that and kind of keep the emotion consistent throughout not just an informational documentary was that something that was present was that something in the front of your mind when you were filming absolutely just wanted to avoid being a talking head documentary so there's a lot of visuals there's a lot of graphics being a cartoonist myself um, and and our, both our editor Ben Waters and my co-director Fred Schroeder and I um, are, are very visually oriented people. So we hired great animators. We hired great um, 16-bit animators. Um, we hired great musicians. Um, and the, the film moves along as a result. So, yeah, it's, it's far more visually interesting. We kind of had a benchmark that every seven minutes, something uh, very visually interesting would, would happen on film. That's interesting, like, to, to kind of keep that to keep that metric sort of in the, in the front of your mind, yeah. like, specifically. Uh, was it, How did that come about? Was that, just, was that just because you've seen a lot of other documentaries that fell, fell into that? trap or was there anything behind that? Uh, seven minutes just seems to be a, a, a space of time that if, if you haven't been uh, enticed and like let's say you were watching something on TV and it starts to trail off for you. Seven minutes is about the time you might give up on it. So it seemed like a, a, a worthwhile uh, time every seven minutes to sort of rejuvenate the film by either introducing a different style a different approach, a different tone, a different musical note, um, a different uh, editing style and uh, so that's what we did. Yeah. Very cool and what kind of like filmmaking experience did you uh, uh, come to with this prior to this film or was this your first documentary? This is my first documentary and my first bit of filmmaking ever actually. Um, but if you think of cartooning as sort of a sister art to filmmaking in terms of the staging, the setting, the, the tonality of shots, the angles, the, the lighting. Um, I mean a cartoonist can essentially be a director for every panel that they that they draw. 
Um, so in some small, humble way, my cartooning has helped, I think, a little bit prepare me from directing, yeah. What, uh, are there any plans for documentaries outside of this, or was this just your one-off passion project, this is it, or is there another film you have in mind now? This was my one-off shot. Uh, Fred is a fantastic filmmaker, fantastic, fantastic documentarian, fantastic DP, um, and, but now having worked together, and so what I meant by that is he, of course, has a whole career ahead of him and behind him. Um, this was going to be my one-off, but now that have, we've done it, we so enjoyed working together that I, I think we've got three other projects we're talking about, so we'll see what happens. Outstanding. Well, the film looks great. Uh, congratulations on the filming, and best of luck to you guys. Now, where can we find the film uh, if we want to, if people want to take a look at it? Uh, the film, the trailer can be seen at strippedfilm.com, all one word, and uh, you can also find it on iTunes, Google Play, VHX, Amazon, and uh, and elsewhere. So, yeah, thanks very much. Sounds good. Congratulations. Yeah. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Excellent, guys. Great job. Last omniscient editor's note, colon. Teague will later be embarrassed by making an argument about audio quality after hearing the audio quality of the Comic-Con interviews. In Eddie's defense, it was Comic-Con and haptic, and the interviews were excellent. In Teague's defense, eh, you know what? Teague gets no defense. Teague sucks. Let's do this. So yeah, that so that was uh that was one of the co-directors of Stripped. He was the one who uh, didn't really have a filmmaking background. His partner did, but he was a comic strip artist himself. Yeah, and this was very again. much yeah, this is very much a passion project. Like you said, he'd been working on this for like four or five years, and you can tell you can tell that they you can tell that the interviews were the interviews were not necessarily the most sophisticatedly shot. Because as you know, because you saw the film mm-hmm. and you you had an issue with the audio, which I totally understand. And I always say to people, my issue with the audio could have been fixed in post. Is my my larger issue yeah. with the audio is that my issue with the audio could have been fixed in post. You could run it through SoundForge and get a lot of those frequencies out easily. I mean, H- higher mastering. Yeah, guy. higher mastering guy. And for the amount of money they spent shooting, and for the amount of money, I mean, it's edited very tightly, and the amount of graphics and CG they have in there is is, is very interesting. And it's, I mean, and, and it works. And like I said, it actually works quite a bit to sort of help this film out so they were selling retail copies of this uh in addition to they actually won the best documentary at the 2014 comic-con international film festival so congrats to them you can rent it on itunes yeah i just got it on google play today google play and they're selling hard copies and if you go to their website you can order physical copies of it as well what were you what were your thoughts of the film um i'm sure these the the, the folks are awesome and the guy that you talk to and everyone i I don't want to you smirch them. Yeah, because no, you, you can you can lay, criti- you can lay fair criticism. Well, down. the thing is, I, I rage quit that movie thirty minutes into it uh, because of the technical issues. Yeah, I have a I have a an amateur like like a like a high level amateur background in audio stuff, uh, and I I didn't have equipment that I could play it back and hear what was happening in the movie. Right, basically, like my, uh, I would go through all my Dolby shit. I'd go through all the different headphones I had. There was no version of the movie that I could hear that the like the actual dialogue and prose was centered and mm-hmm. and in front and the music wasn't immediately yeah like right around it on all sides in front of it it was quiet and just weird obviously lots of the interviews weren't miked and the reason i get all crappy about this is is it's twofold one is just it's it's frustrating to try to hear stuff when you can't easily hear it in any in any capacity and like the audio cues are massively over loud and, and stuff like that but two that to me like there, there are, are honest attempts at an amateur level mm-hmm. that aren't good enough, but there are honest attempts. There right. are, there are th- multiple times in stripped. I got the sense that it wasn't even an honest attempt. Like they were, they didn't care. Right. And when I, the first time I get a sniff of, I don't think they cared. 
that's when I go, well, I'm not going to care. I, I can't get involved in this. And I'm getting so mad. It's like, God damn it. I, how, how is that cue that loud over Bill Watterson, who is that quiet right. and not mic'd? Right. It's, I, it's just the sort of thing where literally a sound editor could have come in and maybe not rage quit that movie. But I couldn't hear it. And I eventually got too frustrated. Well, 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 first things first. That I was, sounds superficial, but no, like, take, it's, it, it's, take it as a warning, it's I guess. Not, it's not superficial. I always tell people... Uh, Audiences will forgive bad visuals. They will not forgive bad audio. Yeah, watch 28 Days Later. Bad visuals, people go like, oh, this looks stupid. Bad audio, they just turn it off. 28 Days Later is shot on mini DV. It's low res. Yeah, but the Shark, audio is great. You know, Sharknado has the quality of VFX that they're going to pay for, which is like, you know, they're the crappy fun movie VFX that everyone had to do really fast. But the movies are still fun. It still works. But when the audio isn't there, that's like... It, the threshold is so much lower with audio. Right. Bad, bad so, visuals. So to speak. No, bad visuals don't hurt. Uh, bad audio can hurt. Bad visuals can be a style choice. Exactly. Bad audio and, can. Yeah. Bad audio, you, you, it's really just like, you know, we, um, there's nuance, but there's a base level of competence with audio. And I'm not, and again, yeah. I want to be clear. I, I like the film. Um, for what it was, but the, pro, but I did have a massive issue with the audio, like you said, and it did for me, if, if it takes me out of enjoying the film, yeah. It's a problem, and it did. And I would say, you know, it's they're 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 one of the top rentals for documentaries on iTunes right now, and they're selling and they're doing great. Yeah. Uh, the problem is, is that it's something like this. Like, had the audio been cleaned, PBS, yeah, any my TLC, like and, any and of these clear, networks would have picked it up. To be clear, my problem isn't they didn't mic their interviews. I mean, I have a problem with that, but that's not the problem I'm talking about. The problem I have is. The sound mix literally could have been better with what they had. Yeah, no, like, yeah, like, like we substantially could, better to the point where I wouldn't have a complaint about. There's it. like five programs we could both name right now where if you just run a uh, a frequency killer on and then boost levels and then center pan and then double up the tracks, you could have gotten around a lot of that. Um, if if for no other reason than some asshole on this podcast would have been able to hear your movie clearly and not gotten mad. Yeah. I mean, it's just, and, and that's the thing. It's and like, I feel, it, I feel so dumb for that being the no, thing. No, but, no, no. But this, this but, raises a good point that we haven't really raised on this, on this, on this podcast before, which is, you know, it's, it's, you have to you can work your ass off on your movie, but got to pay attention to some details. Cause you never know why someone's going to turn it off. Absolutely. I mean, my, my first, and I, um, I'm making the announcement officially here. I'm going to be uploading for free, uh, life in the cage. My student. No way. Uh, oh, the, it's coming. It's coming out of the history, man. Yeah. The, it's the rights reverted back to me few years ago are you gonna I'm, put a I'm title on it like i'm really embarrassed I'm by this, fi- but i'm gonna, gonna put it up. i'm gonna film wraparounds and all this other shit Be like, but like hi i'm eddie Doty, director yeah. of life of the cage well <laughs> yeah. i was i made this a long time ago and I, I would do a lot differently yeah. now but i figure for history's sake might as well just throw it <laughs> yeah, online right. um please don't judge me goodbye right out <laughs> but it's uh but, but the thing is is like it's but the problem with that is and the reason why i bring it up is that there's there's well, some interviews that were just camera mics you know what i mean but that's that's that's, that's a different game though that's that's a student filmmaker making his first documentary no doesn't i even know who's I, gonna be. I i refuse to let myself off the hook because if i'm i had a distribution distribution deal if i'm gonna have a distribution deal i have to be held to the same standard as any other film being distributed and i guess that's what I'm trying to say to these filmmakers here is that um, because it's shot awesomely, they have great, it's well photographed. It's That's well what photographed. Blows my mind. There's great content. There's great. Uh, I love the transitional elements. I love the story. I love the fact that they got Bill Waterson. Like that's crazy. Yeah. To There's say nothing so of much- the access. I mean, just. All this yeah. stuff is all you know. It's all working, and and having a co-director who does the thing you're doing a documentary about, like it provides an insight, and there is there is a flow, and this does go deeper. This does do all the things I ask it to, but it doesn't do one of the basic things that, as a film watcher, I'm promised, which is clean audio. Uh, yeah, I mean, 
I, I, I don't feel like I'm being too precious by having it be like almost as egregious as if no. like the audio and the video were out of sync. Right. I mean, it's, it's like that. It's that level of, well, it's what, what was the point of making this if this was the thing you were going to drop the ball on? Part of the reason why you, I think you rage quit it is that because you legitimately are interested in what everybody is saying and you are angry you can't hear and understand them. At various parts. And especially thing, if you're going to be like a number one rental on iTunes, you have to assume a good chunk of those people are going to be watching on their laptops. Oh, yeah. And no, if you, on my laptop, it was impossible. And if you, yeah, and if you can't, if it's like, well, clearly I need to put this on my Apple TV or my Roku or my Chromecast or whatever, yeah. then I, then, okay. And then if my TV therefore cannot support it, or if I have to crank my TV up and then the mix becomes wildly uneven. Yeah, well, at that point, then like you're just making the music that's louder than Bill Waters right. louder. But let me ask you this. Because uh, I'm curious about what your answer to this would be. My assumption would be, and by the way, guys, I, I know it sounds like we're beating on you way too hard. I think we are. But on the assumption that what they would say to that, the directors, the producers, the, the creative team behind sure. Stripped would sure. say to that is, yeah, dude, we didn't know you were going to be number one on iTunes. Come on. What would you say to that? Um, no, because like, here's the thing. I, this is what I, this is the impression that I got. The first, the first uh, director, the one that I interviewed, um, and I'm I'm forgetting names right now, but forgive me. So he was a he. This was obviously a passion project for him, and I think he was on board first. And I think he had been sort of collecting interviews randomly when he could. Yeah. So a lot of those issues are just you know from just not knowing. He brought on a director that had actual documentary and filmmaking experience, and you can tell it, it does feel like two directors mm-hmm. because at times uh, it, it's very unified and it feels like a, sol- a solid film. But like the the assets to it, like certain interviews, are shot and recorded bad certain interviews you just can't hear them you know same with bill watterson like it's just it's it's an issue and it's a good film and i want to recommend it and i i I want to be officially documentality recommend stripped it is worth your time it is worth your money pay money to see it i'm saying that now officially with the caveat that get some headphones and ride the levels yeah because and that's unfortunate that you as the viewer have to do that, but that should not stop you from renting and or purchasing this film. Also, the DVD, I want to say, has three additional hours of interviews with everybody. So including the uncut, unedited Bill Watterson stuff. So if you even have a passing interest in this material or in this content, you owe it to yourself to pick up the DVD. But so, what, But what would you say to the, we didn't know we were going to be on iTunes? doesn't matter doesn't matter. I mean, it's just like... It's a threshold. Yeah, you got you you to you clear that bar. If you're going to make a film for people to watch baseline what do I need for them to watch and experience this content regardless of how I'm going to present it regardless if it's five people or five million yeah you don't walk out the front door with your pants on your head yeah I mean it's just it's just it's basic it's like saying um, I'm building a house but only two people are ever going to live in it or two people are ever going to go walk into it right you know it's like it doesn't matter it's like you it's still the doorknob still have to turn you know the plumbing still has to work sure you know it's and that's that's my basic thing and again we're not we're sorry not, to be harsh no Sorry, but guys. it's like it's it's like it's, it's i'm not blown the, away that you got bill no it's 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 a great film that is held back by one thing in my mind and yeah i'm never gonna i'm this. never gonna see the last two-thirds of that movie it's as good as anything else i just watched that pbs documentary about superheroes you know just the history of superheroes it was as good as that with the exception of the audio and i i am loath to think of what possibilities this could have had this could have had yeah had some of these audio issues not been there. And, by the way, by the way, you can literally still fix it, you guys. If you still have your stems, <laughs> yeah. you can literally do a remix yeah. that 100% absolves you of these things. You're right. still going to have bad miking in a couple places. Totally. You can do a lot with that, but that's still forgivable. You can literally still have someone else come in and do a fresh remix on, all, on all your tracks. Absolutely. Just so, you know. I guess that's the lesson of, of, of Stripped. Um, so with that said, you know, and, and... But you like the movie. Though. I like the movie very much and, and everything that came out of this was, wow, how is, was I, rad. I, I hate to keep fucking blaming in this point but how was how, no, how, how is the how is it 
played back in a giant auditorium room. I, have I, to didn't, I didn't see it. I didn't see it in screen oh, okay. theatrical. Okay. I, I, I watched I it. Say, I have to imagine it'd be impossible to hear. No, actually, I think it's. I think it's still there. It's just that. You know, it, it's loud and then it's quiet, and then it's loud and then it's quiet. I think it's actually easier than you and I who watch this literally on our laptops. Yeah, you know what I mean. So it's like, but again, you have to, you have to assume, you know, at least thirty percent of your audience is going to see your movie and interface with your content this way. Oh yeah. So it's like that. That's you have to be mindful of that, mm-hmm. um, because that's just the age we live in. You know, and and like I said, like I interview with Dana, like you know, social media is like going to be a huge part of this, not just this campaign, but this film. And they have to. That's the world we now live in when we're talking about advertising. Prepare and, your media yeah. for all venues. Exactly. So you know, we kind of sound like we're. At least I know Waldorf I, and Statler <laughs> a little bit. I mean, we, we're very positive on Back It Begins, and we're and I'm and I'm like not as, but I'm still positive on the the, the Atari film. Um, but the rest of the films kind of sounds like we're kind of crapping out on. I want to use this um, to uh, this 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 episode to also talk about what is, in my opinion, the best film to come out of the uh, Comic Con Film Festival, and that is Marwing Call. Before we do, I want to say real quick. By the way, congratulations, you guys, for Stripped and High Five. And stripped and, and everybody who participated in the Film Fest and, and, and it's, it comes from love. It comes from, it comes from trying to just like, you know, we want everything to be better and we want everything to be, you know, in my, like I've said before, the mission statement of this documentary is don't always get the attention and love that they deserve. So we, so, care, that we care about first impressions for whatever doc anyone might see first. Exactly. So, and, and that goes to our friends at Illustrated by, or, you know, white writers, black Superman. Like we, it's, it's all those. It's, you know, take the lessons of this and, and we'd love to, we'd love to hear from any of you, by the way. Like if, if any of you want to reach out, we should do like a, from. like an Uwe Boll thing where, where you can come and punch Eddie in the face for sure. everything I just said about stripped. No, I mean like, I mean, that's the thing I, I've not said anything is bad. I've just said like certain things of what, like I think each film was just kind of lacking a thing. I just, I just want you to be on the hook for getting punched in the face for sure. things that I say. I'll, sure. I'll take it. I so, can, I've, this note has been broken a few times. So, <laughs> so Marwin call. Marwin call. I'm actually going to let you set up Marwin call. Well, first of all, this is not that like like the trading movie with with Spock in it. Margin call. Although, no. <laughs> that's too close. That, those titles are too close. Uh, Marwin call. I had been hearing about that forever and ever. It's a documentary that uh, it shows up on Netflix for like six months at a time every seven months, and uh, I never actually watched it. I think I'd actually watched a few minutes of it at one point and ended up turning it off, but. The short version, in case you haven't seen it, is that this this guy got into a fight. Uh, Mark Hogan Camp is his name. He uh, was, I guess, a semi out of the closet transvestite. He mentioned it to the wrong group of guys. They beat the shit out of him. He ended up with some really severe brain damage, and among like dozens of other symptoms, including but not limited to like amnesia and you know, major like personality altering changes. I mean, had to, le- had to learn to walk again, had to learn to talk again, had to learn to write again. Interestingly, like before yeah. it, it was, he was an alcoholic and then after it, he, he did no interest in alcohol, which yep. that's interesting. And, it fundamentally yeah. changed him on a chemical level. And he was overcome with all of these things to the point where he couldn't even like express himself anymore because all the, all the sort of tools he had taught himself over the course of his life to express himself had gotten jarred and, and taken away from him. What is what is a man to do? In well, that on top of that, he couldn't afford therapy, and he couldn't afford therapy to like talk it out and work on right. it. Right. So, what's a man to do? And what he chose to do is, well, maybe chose is even too strong a word. But what he ended up doing, what he felt compelled to do, what he felt compelled to do is sort of piece by piece create this city of dolls and small scale models in his backyard, one six scale, as well as this overarching like the stand storyline going on for everyone in the town set in world war ii belgium with himself as the lead guy yeah he literally got uh, oh the town is called marwin call town is called marwin call he literally got 12 inch gi joes and like barbies and barbies 
uh, with you know all the points of articulation and recreated this World War Two World War Two era. No, created, yeah, created this. He recreated yeah, the he, time frame. Yeah, yeah, recreated the time frame, but like just it, wholesale a, made up this town. Like with, I mean. And by major, I mean like roads and you know like, cutaways. You know your grandpa's weird friend who has the whole train set thing going on in his basement, and he like spends his his like his months painting mm-hmm. tree leaves and shit. He did that with these with these dolls as a way to, and it's never quite specifically said. You kind of have to do armchair to to sort of sort out why. I love that they never touch on it. Like the reason why. Like yeah, seriously. Like the, the answer to the question, why are you doing this, dude, is never specifically addressed. Although the the as an exercise for the viewer. Uh, and my interpretation of it is, is simply that he lacked the facilities to deal with larger social things in sure. real life and variables that he didn't know the outcome of. Well, the key the key to it also... And he just yeah. needed to create a thing that he was in control of, these things, so that things wouldn't surprise him anymore because he'd been deeply traumatized by being surprised once. Right. The one-to-one analog... That's me. That's not the yeah, movie. The main guy in this, the main guy in Marwin Call and the main, like, the main doll is an analog of him. Uh, so he has like a character so it's not his name it's he's got a different like right. it's a character full name last name backstory and everybody in his life has a, a doll analog yeah. in Marwin call with their own backstory like his mom is the barber ten- the bartender barber yeah exactly and like and even the dudes who beat him up have a presence in Marwin call they're five SS officers yeah and they and they show up now the reason why now you're probably thinking like well what does he do is he just play with them what he ends up doing is cre- is photographing them and god damn it's beautiful it's he well he as a and the, uh, in a second i'm gonna get to why i'm so in like i i wasn't over the moon about marwin call but i i found myself more intellectually stimulated by marwin call than i've been by a lot of things that are supposed to be more stimulating um but the thing about what happens is he's he's not doing this for anybody he's built you know that house we were just talking about like you don't build a house for just yourself and then you know let yourself off the hook if the, if the doorknobs don't work he's not doing this for anyone he's building a house for himself and one of the things that he's just doing in it is taking pictures of these little, you know, tableaus, these little dioramas that he's set up, and no one's supposed to see them. He just wants to have the pictures. He throws away the negatives once he gets the picture, right? Yeah. He just, he's literally just taking pictures for himself yeah. as a compulsion. I, I think it's like, it's, it's, it's as much of the process as even dressing them up or even having them for him. Right. I speculate. He lays down these, like, memories, basically, and it turns out they're just, the, the level of detail he's put into these sets and his natural skill for composition. These are excellent photos, and it turns out that eventually some people start to find out about this and go, dude, you should... This this could be a gallery installation if you wanted it to be. And then that's where I get that's, into my whole intellectual thing. Yeah. Where it's like, okay, so this is a guy who's who's lost his mind. He's come back. He's trying to put himself back together. I would say he's lost it. I think his mind is simply transformed. Well, yeah. He's... You know, but he yeah. had a, a formative change. Yeah. And for nobody but himself... His overwhelming compulsion is to tell stories. Yeah. I love the idea that, that just as a human detail, that you know, some guys get their get their marbles knocked out, come back as like a concert pianist with a weird Russian accent. Things like this happen. And it's weird brain stuff. I love the idea that at one point in human history, a man was like brain damaged and came out with the the simple need to tell stories as an exercise for itself for, uh, I, for, for the sake of telling stories with no intention of anyone knowing he was doing it just 
to to collect himself the only thing that made sense for him to do was to tell stories i'm, I'm moved by that i think that's really I, cool. I think that's and that's i mean honestly like if we really want to get i mean i i get i don't talk about it much but i really i really do feel like that the human need to tell stories and to create narratives is as is as important to us as interacting and yeah. touching and like it's all and, the like, things it's, it's a human i dare say biological function it's one of the things that like separates us is being able to tell our own stories up there is like up there with like love yeah in a weird way yeah and like it will just, and any kind of like social interaction whatsoever i feel like it's it's absolutely necessary to who we are and we all tell stories in our own way and even through this man's damaged transformed mind that urge to tell a story and you could make a case of that you know that that, that is cross-dressing at something was also an expression of that as well interesting about, about control literally i know we did the controlling the narrative episode but the, the idea of like this is how he uh, he how he expresses the story of himself he communicates himself he communicates himself through these photos what ends up now that's enough for a film just a uh, just a bio study of this guy what ends up happening over the course of this he's attacked by a shark attacked by a shark nobody who, saw that coming who himself has a miniature town and high heels no sorry none of those things so what ends up happening is he somehow these photos end up uh in the hands of this like magazine it's a magazine called asopus i think it's called it's this magazine called whatever it's an art magazine and it leads to like you kind of hinted at a gallery showing in new york in 2009 i want to say and that's the second level of really weird interesting questions about like authorship authorship and and the point of art and is art for ourselves is art once we put art into the world does it not become ours anymore do we have a right as artists who create to say you know once it's out of my hands like no i don't want everything else that goes along with art or does the rest of like the population except for the artist get to decide that something that someone who is just a person until just now has been an artist this whole time and right. has been making art this whole time when they themselves would never have said said that and it gets in this weird idea of like obligation as the as the artist like who right. you know who are you creating the art for and why and, and does that change the people who put him up we as we talked about before the show we started recording uh the people who put on the show for him take wonderful sweet. they were very they sweet. take wonderful care for him so we don't want to lead that down the yeah, road because you know you can imagine that this is a guy who's sincere in this effort and it's the sort of thing where if it was framed wrong he could end up becoming like a joke and that would be cruel they were deliberately like going out of their way to avoid that to their credit right that's good it was and it was a safe place it was totally safe but it does and then like he gets really anxious about he wants to wear his heels which mm-hmm. and it's just really if all these really, strangers are going to see him and judge him how does he want to be how does he want to be presented how does he, he never has to worry about that when he's taking the photos but in a weird way by being in a gallery you are the photo you know you are the thing being exactly. observed and so then he has to for the first time he has to say like i've separated myself from this regular world through Marwin Call. Marwin Call has been my way to avoid contact with the world, but now I'm in this position where I have to do it. It's fascinating now, stuff. There's my thing with the movie, though, okay. which is that I am blown away. I, I want to have five-hour-long conversations about just these concepts, yeah. with, with using this basically as helpful example technology for that conversation. Right. And this movie doesn't actually spend much time on those questions. Now, I could give it the credit of it's it's not an accident that I'm, I'm thinking about this stuff, and, right. he, and he sort of framed that subtextually, but... There's a, a tremendous amount of the movie Marwin Call is spent in the storyline of City Marwin Call, made up City Marwin right. Call, which as a way to fill time, yes, awesome. And as a way to basically as an excuse to show these setups and, and how complex and, and how much he's taking it seriously and not kidding. And you might think it's gross and he's just like he has a, a, a doll girlfriend because he wants to nail his doll girlfriend, but it's <laughs> way more than that. And to a certain extent, you have to basically give him credibility in this whole thing. Right. But beyond that, it's not that anyone would expect it to but the storyline of what's going on in the Marwin Call City doesn't go anywhere it's just no. it's just the ongoing soap it's, opera it's of just his life that yeah. town yeah. 
And we spend an awful lot of time like paying attention to the story beats of what's happening in this thing that doesn't actually end up going anywhere. And if there was... I have a theory about it, but I'll let you finish. If I was going to... I'm going to let you finish. Uh, but if I was going to have anything to say about this, uh, and again, holy shit with the subject matter and great find, good audio, um, is, <laughs> is that the, the photography of what's happening inside Marwin Call while you're telling the story of what he's saying is happening in Marwin Call is, gor- is glorious. I would find potentially something else to spend that time on. And that would be one thing that you could spend it on, is, I don't, is those I, yeah. sort of loftier things. That again, that would totally change the scope of the documentary, right. and it's no longer a conversation about an actual guy, it's a meta-conversation about the conversation, and that might not be what they wanted to do. But I, don't think, I like Marin Call a lot, I like the conversations I'm going to get to have in my life more. I, I, don't, I don't think your choices would lead to a worse film, and I don't think your choice, like what you would you know, express as your choices to do with the film, are wrong in and of itself. I would say that... The re- I think, I mean, my theory and my read on it when I saw it was, you know, we spend all this time investing in the stories of Marwan Call because it needs to be a real thing that we as the audience watching this have to have a connection to. We It can't just be dolls and photos for us. We have to... We have know, to actually live in that... Yeah. Okay, I see So that saying. when it goes to New York, we have to feel a sense of threatening that... They're, uh, they're going to see us. Yeah. That we ha- Well, we have to see... This, we have to feel that weird sense of like possession and ownership that uh that uh, mark does and it's that's a really interesting point i yeah. wouldn't have thought of that and i think that 100 percent trumps what i said okay because, I win. because at that Fatality. point yeah because i think at that point then it's like if you don't have that feeling of a personal connection and relating to and feeling like i, I know the story of marwin call but i don't think anyone else would get then it then who gives a shit if it goes then who York? gives a shit to yeah so yeah i that's that's that you, was my you need that to, for stakes to worry about how he's going to be exactly because you have to we have to feel connection and there's a re, you know when they introduce somebody yep, sold when they introduce a talking head in the film they do a thing where oh that's they, so cool they do a thing in the talking head where the person is holding up their doll analog right to camera and they're in background defocused yeah and like, it's cause, awesome because he's taken everyone he knows and put them in, right. in marwin call so it'll, like the shot will be this like just someone's holding a barbie in your face and in boca is the person who's it's like a doppelganger yeah. of yeah which which that's another conversation it's so, it's so blatant what it is you get it immediately but it's not pretentious at all it's yeah. like oh yep makes sense and that has know? just a whole another layer of conversations that i want to have in a bar sometime if you're in right. la call me i want to talk about marlon call with you <laughs> fucking marlon call man but the idea that like you might this if you discovered this and he hadn't been telling you about it like if you're his friend if you discover this and he hadn't told you about it this would be terrifying silence of the lambs creepy weirdo masturbatory theater that you would be terrified of and run from but potentially but I like mean, if you discovered this whole alternate world where you're a character and he's putting you in this and he's married you he told you know, etc like that i could imagine being really freaked out by that and yet he doesn't approach it that way at all it's it's not he's not even aware that it's kind of creepy really it's, it's more like he's telling people like oh by the way and here's what you're doppelganger like the uncritical unguardedness of him telling all the people like, okay, and here's your character and I've given you a doll. And to, to their credit, like one of his buddies, he's like, when he makes the doll of you, it's a symbol of respect. It means that you matter that much to him that you need to be a character in his, in, in this other life too. And that's, I'm, I'm just struck by the fact that he told them and right. that they get to hold their own doll. And, and that, it almost feels as if it, they shouldn't know that this is happening, but then that would be terrifying. Like right. it's weird. It's interesting. And I love the device of them holding up the dolls. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great tool. It's a great device that they use. Um, so yeah, I mean, and here's the thing, if you're feeling like we spoiled any of this, we have it. go watch it. It's on, is it still on Netflix? I believe it's on Netflix. It is on Netflix. It's on Netflix streaming. It's also on iTunes. It's also in, uh, I believe it's on Amazon prime. I could be wrong. You can always check these things at uh, can I stream dot it. Yeah. And that's, <laughs> 
but no, it's it's a it's a great film. It's definitely worth your time. And in my opinion, it's the best film to come out of the Comic Con Film Festival. What Why? a weird place for it to premiere? Is that the premiere there? I didn't. I don't think it premiered, but it played it, it and it played. cleaned house. Oh, you yeah. know what I mean? But it was it was a natural fit for the Comic Con Film Fest because. The Comic Con Film Festival It isn't just about Hey we want docs on toys And all this other shit I, I've I've waxed uh, Romantic and nostalgic About Comic Con And the reasons why I go Largely in our Comic Con episode of, of the intermission Which you can still find At friendsyourhead.com But I To put a but Not to put too fine a point on it But like For me And why I feel like A lot of amateur filmmakers Bring their films here Is because It's The common denominator for me About Comic Con in general And this film fest And the subject matters it's stuff that people care really passionately about. And it's stuff that you can dismiss all of these things as, Oh, it's just a comic book. It's just a toy. It's just a kid dressed up as Batman. You can dismiss all these things, but there is, they all give a shit right. to, to a degree that like not every subject matter they give as much of a shit about. And so whether it's something as successful as Marlon call or something, hopefully as successful as bat kid begins is going to be, or whether it's something maybe not as successful as illustrated by like the, the common denominator is like, these are subject matters that people obviously fucking care so much about that require you to care so much about them that now you were vulnerable to being made fun of for liking it that much. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, and that's the thing. It's like, um, yeah, I mean, I didn't, I was telling somebody the other day, I, I, this was my 22nd comic con. I I didn't tell Dude, your Comic-Con timeline can buy a beer now. Yeah. <laughs> I've been going to Comic-Con in my life more than I haven't. Yikes. You know, so it's like cuz I'm 36 and like I the thing is is that I didn't tell people I went to Comic-Con uh really until about it was, you know, your, it was your shame. I was like, I was like twenty three. Was the first time I'd be like, yeah, I go to Comic Con every year, and and not have the expectation that people will give me shit about it. Either not know what it is, or oh yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so and so, I love that we live in this time now, but there's still stuff that's like too obscure, you know. And I I love the fact that you know there's people making docs about comic strips, which I mean, honestly, who do we know outside of a few people actively read comic strips? You know, not that many. Yeah. But it's if you can convey that passion in a feature doc. That's, I mean, that you know, that's kind of what feature docs are for—to bring these kind of obscure things and make them feel big and make them feel as relevant to us as they do to the people who are making them. Yeah, and that's by the way, just not to keep punching stripped. I did feel strip could have done better on on framing comic books as a as a thing in the larger pop culture comic context. Strips. But then again, yeah. I didn't get. Very far into the movie, they, they and maybe, maybe they did. They get there. I mean, okay, they, they get enough. there's there's definitely more emotional connection there. It's funny too. One of the first people they interview in that film is as uh, Jeff Keen from Family Circus. Yeah, I met him at Comic Con 2009 um, at the Field, the Irish Pub in San Diego. Nice. I was having drinks with some buddies. He was just happened to be at the table next to us, and he and I just struck up a conversation, drinking Guinness and Shandies uh, for the better part of the night. And then it wasn't until 45 minutes of my conversation with them that I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm Jeff Keen. I draw a family circus. And Comic-Con is magic. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. There's still... And for me, it's like every year, there's things I look forward to and I see that I enjoy, but there's always that moment that creeps up on you and is fucking magic. The organic moment. For, you know, for me this year, it was, you know, uh, Stars hired that one... Uh, Stars hired a bagpipe band to walk around the gas lamp playing bagpipes. And to promote the show Outlander that they've got coming out. Okay. They're walking down the street, playing bagpipes, just playing the traditional bagpipe stuff. They see a Jedi cosplayer and immediately bust into the Star Wars theme. Yeah. That's magic. That's the The other big magic for me for this year, uh, straight up, was the Bad Kid Begins panel. Like, there was tangible magic in the air. They tapped tapped into something. They tapped into something there that... 
God damn it. I'm, you know, I'm confident they will, but I sincerely hope they are able to convey the sheer love and joy miles had for yeah. this silly 75 year old comic book. Um, if they, if they, cause that, 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 that's so infectious and it spread so well. I think Marlon call was able to, in a very different way, tap into that. And I'm hoping that back it begins can as well. Yeah. With that, Ladies and gentlemen, this has been Documentality, part of the Friends in Your Head network at friendsinyourhead.com. If you go to the forums, you can join us in on the conversation on these. You can also check out past episodes of friendsinyourhead.com, not just of Documentality, but of our sister podcast, What Are You Doing Movie, The Intermission, and Uncomposed. Uh, follow us on Facebook, friendsinyourhead.com forward slash, or facebook.com forward slash friendsinyourhead. You can follow us on Twitter, friendsinyourhead uh, at Twitter. Uh, I'm Eddie Doty. And I'm Teague Christie. This has been Documentality. Good night, good night. Good night. Oh, and thanks to Dana and everyone else. Dana Knockman, thank you to everybody who I interviewed at Comic-Con. Yep. That was good. See, because the mics are on mic stands, you didn't just drop the mic, you just dropped the headphones on the mic. Yeah, Yeah, just because you got to drop something. (laughs) Friendsinyourhead.com.